The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Toby Meyer Fong, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the History Department at Johns Hopkins University. Professor Meyer Fong is a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program, class of 2008 to 2010. We will discuss her new book, What Remains, Coming to Terms with Civil War in 19th Century China. Toby, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your book. Thank you for taking the time to interview the book. First, your book clearly represents an enormous amount of research and is beautifully written. Congratulations. Your previous book, Building Culture in Early Qing Yangzhou, looked at a very different time in China from the current book, a time of ascendance, wealth, confidence, growth, and peace. By contrast, the Taiping Rebellion was marked by enormous destruction, threatening the very survival of the Qing regime. What made you turn to the war of mid-19th century China? That's a great question, Margot. Basically, when I was finishing the first book, Building Culture in Early Qing Yangzhou, it occurred to me that I hadn't yet looked at the gazetteer, the local history from 1874, in spite of the fact that I'd looked at every single gazetteer from the late Ming um, through the early 19th century. And it crossed my mind that someone might call me to task for that um, oversight. So I, And I realized that the Library of Congress, which is right up the street from where I live, had a copy of the book, and I thought that would be even more unforgivable. So I thought, okay, I'll take a few minutes, I'll look at the book, and then I can put it in my bibliography and call it a day. Um, but what I found in that book on that day really changed my perspective on Qing history. Um, it changed the conclusion to my first book, um, and it really forced me to write on this topic. Um, what I found on that day in that book was that all of, basically, building culture in early Qing Yangzhou takes as, it, as its focus the construction of scenic sites as a kind of cultural metaphor for Qing construction on Ming foundations. And every single one of the scenic sites that I looked at in that book was destroyed over the course of the Taiping Rebellion, mm -hmm. um, which put a really different coda on the topic. And also, as I was looking at the Gazetteer, I, I couldn't just stop at looking at the section on scenic sites. So I was flipping through it, trying to figure out what made that edition special. And I realized that there was a huge section in the middle that documented the deaths of Qing subjects that could be construed as loyal and righteous. And it focused on the moment. Of, so it's this incredible litany describing the moments of death of individuals that could be construed as loyal and righteous. And sitting there on that day, I felt myself compelled to translate each of these accounts, even though there was no way to incorporate that material into the first book. It really made me think about how I taught Qing history, how I understood Chinese history, and particularly 
how I had been thinking about, the, actually how I had been not thinking about the Taiping Rebellion. And so uh, I looked back at my notes on that day, after at the end of the day, and I thought, you know, someone really ought to, actually I wrote in my notes, someone really should write about this stuff. Um, it's, it, it's awful that no one has ever talked about the destruction and damage associated with this war, this, this war. And um, it's always been thought of as a revolutionary religious movement. Um, and so I, I started thinking about, well, how are we going to document the damage? You note at the beginning of the book that writing so much about death and destruction and about so much death and destruction was very painful. Does the act of remembrance, whether by survivors or by those of us living in a different time and place, affirm the lives of those who were lost, and if so, how? It's a really, another really good and powerful question, Margot. Um, in a sense, I think that recognizing the suffering of people in the past is a very affirming gesture because it forces us to rethink the ideological or political or sociocultural historical meanings that we impose on what for them was just their lives and remembering that these people inhabited a world where you could leave home one morning and never go back I think forces us to reconsider and value what we have in the present in new ways if indeed we have that in the present mm -hmm. um, and also I think it helps us connect with the Chinese past in ways that remind us of our shared humanity rather than focusing on this sort of exotic episode in the Chinese past, but I think it really forces us to confront what we have in common. Mm -hmm. And this may overlap with what you just said, but traditional accounts of war, and certainly of the Taiping Rebellion, tend to focus on ideology, colorful characters, of which there certainly were some, and the conduct of battle, only sometimes referring to the carnage. Your book, by contrast, looks at the legacy of death and destruction on those who survived. Why did you take this approach? Well, it seemed to me, first of all, that other people had, could, and, and were more qualified to take the other kind of approach. I mean, I think there's some wonderful work on the colorful characters, the battles. I mean, my my fellow Pip fellow, Steve Platt, wrote a brilliant book um, that in some ways is the, the inverse of mine. Mm -hmm. His book is a big book. It's a spectacular book. I think he really gives us a sense of the emotions and thought processes of, of, of some of these wonderfully colorful characters like Hong Rengan. Um, like Zhang Guofan. I think his account of Zhang Guofan may be the best account of Zhang Guofan I've ever seen in any language. Um, and it's a really powerful um, and interesting way of looking at someone who, who is so larger than life that we forget that he didn't really want to be a general. Um, so it seemed to me that that might be a, a good project for someone else, but what really captured my attention um, in looking at this material was the, the very everyday experience and the ways in which war disrupted the lives of ordinary people and the ways in which the stories they were telling didn't really 
tell a story of loyalty to the dynasty or of sort of proto-revolutionary movements. It really was a story of, of ordinary people trying to make sense of a world that had come completely off its hinges. Now you talk about ordinary people in, as in most of the world, the historical record in China consists primarily of accounts written by the elite. What sources did you use in your research on what remains, and what are some of the limitations of what we can know about the lives of everyday people in mid-19th century China? Sure. I mean, obviously, the category ordinary people in this context refers to ordinary people who left written records. On the other hand, um, I'm not writing about big scholar officials and generals. I'm writing about a man who witnessed the death of his mother when he was seven years old and spent the rest of his life documenting his experience of loss and grief. Um, to my surprise, I found that there were a lot of diaries and memoirs that were either survived in manuscript form, some of them republished with punctuation and compiled, but others still, I mean, I found a number of manuscript diaries hiding out in libraries in China. Mm. Um, I found um, sets of material that compiled by um, local elites documenting the loyalty and righteousness of local residents, kind of martyrologies that recorded who died and how. Mm. Some of them were just nameless, others were biographical accounts centering on the moment of death, um, a form of documentation that I don't think mm. anyone else has looked at in 150 years. And, and these things were just sitting in libraries yeah. and archives? Did you Most have trouble getting at them? I, I, there were there were instances where I literally went to libraries and requested everything from the relevant period of time, and through that I actually found a book that that, that turned out to be more widely available than I had thought. But this this um, this really interesting source that I thought at the time was an illustrated history of the Taiping Rebellion, but at closer inspection, it turned out to be a kind of um, illustrated fundraising text with a kind of um, sort of religious sensibility, a kind of morality text that instructed people on how to understand Fundraising more. for what? Fundraising to help the refugees. Ah. It, because it, it, the, the author purported to offer a form of secondary witnessing, right? If you saw these pictures, you would feel mo moved to donate. And interestingly, if you felt moved to donate and made a donation, you would accumulate merit and protect yourself in the event that something like this ever happened again. Um, so the book wasn't what I expected, but I knew that it was illustrated, that it, that it was text and illustrations um, related to an account of the war. And reading it more closely forced me to focus on the ways in which um, the Taiping religious heterodoxy forced uh, an orthodox religious response mm. um, on the Qing side. Um, so the source material, the sources were surprisingly abundant. Some of them had been compiled into big collections because, of course, the Taiping Rebellion in contemporary China enjoys a certain significance as one of the um, most important events in, mo the, in modern Chinese history, and it's seen as a kind of um, prototype for national revolution. 
Um, so there are a number of big sets of sources related to the Taiping Rebellion that are can divided into um, Taiping sources, Qing sources, and foreign sources in translation. So some of my sources were Qing side sources or sources from the Qing side. But if you read those, you can see between the lines there's as much antipathy to the dynasty even among its purported supporters. So you can learn quite a lot from those accounts. A lot of them are diaries and memoirs, as well as military histories. So there's there was a lot of really rich material. And by paying attention to things that were not easily explained using existing paradigms, I found myself drawn to um, issues of, for example, hairstyle, clothing, bodily markers like tattoos, um, identification papers. And by thinking about these things, you end up focusing on some very practical problems. Um, the territory in the Yangtze Delta region passed back and forth between the Taiping and Qing armies and posed very practical problems for, for example, for merchants who needed to get stuff to market. Mm-hmm. How are you going to, you know, if both sides are requiring special hairstyles and ID passes? How do you navigate going back and forth? And so um, I found uh, um, some material that described salt merchants and low-ranking officials trying to navigate these kinds of challenges. You alluded to the importance of the Taiping to contemporary China. Has the use of the Taiping Rebellion changed, say, from the beginning of the People's Republic to Cultural Revolution period to now? How is it taught? How is it seen? It's really interesting, actually, because it is a particular understanding of the Taiping as a proto-revolutionary movement and um, is, is one of these kind of foundational legitimizing stories about history in the People's Republic and has been from the very beginning. And actually that perspective even predates the founding of the People's Republic. In the Republican period, the Taiping also enjoyed a certain stature as a Han nationalist movement that was a prototype to the 1911 revolution. And then that story gets absorbed into the kind of founding lore of the People's Republic. And for example, if you go to Beijing and you go to the... um, on Tiananmen Square, the monument to the people's heroes has... um, they, they have freezes. The, freezes. the freezes includes a freeze of the Taiping, the Opium War, the Taiping Rebellion. Um, and of course, they wouldn't call it a rebellion. They call it the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom Revolutionary Movement. And they use Geming. Geming, sure. Mm-hmm. It's the Taiping Tianguo Geming Yundong. And um, that, that phraseology um, is, is crucial to the understanding of the period. And one really useful way of thinking about how the official version of the Taiping has changed. And I should say that, um, for example, the 100th anniversary was a big deal. Um, there, there have been other moments during the Cultural Revolution interest in the Taiping as prototype intensified um, as part of a larger interest in, in sort of anti-Confucian revolutionary prototype movements and figures. 
Um, but also, I think, okay, one really good way of focusing on this issue is to think about the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom Revolutionary Movement Historical Museum in Nanjing, which um, opened in the 1950s. Hmm. With the with an inscription by Guo Moro, who is sort of this cultural doyen of the you know, big cultural figure, having his handwriting establishes a certain level of cultural prestige, and an institute research institute was set up, populated by some of the leading scholars. Material was collected, research was done, big exhibit celebrating the the, the revolutionary heritage. Um, it was renovated, I believe, in 2000 with much acclaim hmm. for its successful museum design and exhibition text that both celebrates the Taiping as revolutionary antecedents, but part of what, cele that what they're celebrated for is for their, so they're both, okay, so they're both anti-imperialist revolutionaries and cosmopolitan. Right, they are, so they anticipate, and modernizers, so they anticipate both the revolutionary aspect of the contemporary PRC, but they also anticipate reform and opening up. And that seems to have worked for a while, but if you visit them, if, and so if you visited the museum in 2000, you bought a ticket and you went straight back across this big courtyard into the museum, and you toured the museum, and the museum, on the one hand, celebrates the ways in which the, the Taiping were anti-Qing, um, and therefore sort of anti-feudal, anti-imperialist, and they were pro-Westernization and modernization, um, and they've been celebrated by everyone, including Marx, Mao, and Deng Xiaoping. And Sun Yat-sen, there's like a wall of quotes about the Taiping from famous and important people. There's also a room actually though that um, shows Nanjing after the fall of, the, of Nanjing, after a big battle, and it's incredibly depressing. It shows a kind of defoliated landscape, maybe hinting at the danger of war and chaos to mm -hmm. the populace. But if you visit the museum now, you, your ticket actually admits you to both the museum and an adjacent garden, which has been newly reconstructed. I don't think there was much there before. I think that it's not really a renovation. I think it's a reconstruction, including a renovation of the yamen associated with the garden and an exhibit celebrating all of the high officials that used to gather there and the golden age of the Qianlong Emperor's southern tours, and um, basically advocate, basically celebrating the idea of um, the glorious age, um, and which, which is what the Qing now has become a metaphor for since 2008. Um, it's presented as a, and, and so the state represents itself as a responsible curator of the glories of Chinese cultural heritage, which includes gardens. Mm -hmm. And the museum of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom has become secondary even it's in its own space. And frankly, um, the Taiping is now a sensitive topic um, because it's an it's anti-regime 
protest. Um, so it's actually one of the topics that is considered sensitive and is viewed somewhat schizophrenically. I mean, Zongguofan is now an object of, of some acclaim. Hong Xiuquan remains an object of some acclaim. The Taiping Rebellion itself officially and formally remains an anti-imperialist, anti-feudal, land-reforming feminist movement that anticipates the at least the objectives of the People's Republic. However, it's also politically very sensitive. Like, but if you think about it, many aspects of the revolutionary past are extremely sensitive in the present. So in that sense, it joins a number of historical issues that remain unresolved. I think we have time for one more question. Do you think that the conduct of the Taiping Rebellion and how it is remembered tells us something about other wars in China or about other wars in other parts of the world? It's interesting because I, I had thought about this in relate this question in relation to episodes of individual suffering and political violence in 20th century China. Sort of thinking about what aspects of Chinese history have, if not forgotten, have remained sensitive and relatively under addressed. But in point of fact, I've been reading around in work on the American Civil War, and it's only been relatively recently that we've thought or thought to revisit the primary sources that talk about amputations without anesthesia, that talk about the family, the ways in which families were ripped apart, the ways in which um, death affected basically the ways in which mass death affected Americans' relationship with the state, with themselves, with their families, as Drew Gilpin-Faust has shown in her, her masterful work, This Republic of Suffering. Um, so that in, in, in that sense, what I originally thought of as a kind of prelude to China's 20th century from another perspective really becomes part of a larger set of studies that have revisited the question of war not as a glorious series of battles and colorful characters, but rather thinking about war in relationship to more humanistic questions like what does war mean not in relation to the nation state, but rather to the individual. Toby, thank you very much. It was a very interesting conversation. Thank you very much for a wonderful set of questions. <laughs>